Hey everyone, welcome to War Machine. This is Matt, and I realized that uh, the last episode we put out, which was that reading of a short story by H.P. Lovecraft, I didn't set it up at all and uh, provided really no context or explanation for what that was. And since we're going to be doing a little bit more of that, uh, I figured maybe it would make sense to say something about what, what we're up to here. H.P. Lovecraft, some have referred to him or continue to refer to him as the godfather of modern horror. You can see his fingers all over all kinds of things. More old school horror writers like Stephen King and Clive Barker have credited him with being responsible for their careers in, a, in, in an important way. Also just a very interesting person to read for uh, any number of reasons that we're going to get into in uh, an episode with Justin and Emery Jones, where we're going to talk more about Lovecraft biographically, I suppose. We're going to get into these specific texts that we're um, putting forward. I, th I think there's quite a lot there, and there's a lot that's rich from a literary perspective, from a philosophical perspective, from a theological perspective. And uh, I'm just a fan of Lovecraft's writing. I mean, I was more enamored with him when I was younger. There's a kinship uh, stylistically and even philosophically with Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, there's a sort of Baroqueness intensity to the style that I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for. Uh, and then you you know you add in the dark themes and the cosmic mythology that's being generated here, and I'm like, yeah, this is this is definitely what I what I needed at a certain point in my life. And I don't read him as often anymore, but he's interesting to go back to. For anyone who hasn't read any Lovecraft, um, yeah, I'd recommend you at least check it out. I'll actually share, I have a PDF copy of uh, his complete works. I can share that in the notes. So if people want to read along with this story, uh, you'll be able to do that. Um, this was one that Emery chose. This one falls into more of the Cthulhu mythos, as it's often referred to, whereas the one that I published uh, last week, I guess it was, or earlier in the week, um, uh, falls within the Dreamlands series. So anyway, that's it. This one is quite a bit longer. Uh, so if this is something you're not interested in and you see these episodes popping up, I think there's going to be four of them just because there's there's so much uh, text. Uh, I don't want to publish a four-hour episode. <laughs> and I thought it made... Or I guess it wouldn't be four hours, but it'd be close to two hours. And I thought it makes more sense to break it up into some more digestible pieces. So there's eight sections uh, of this story. And so I'm going to publish four episodes uh, consisting of two uh, sections each, if that makes sense. So hope you enjoy. Um, I also have some other things uh, in the works. Matt Baller and I finally wrapped up our conversation on Vicki Kirby's Quantum Anthropologies, Life at Large. That was a lot of fun. And we interviewed uh, Stephen Shaviro on his 
recent text on the rhythm image, which kind of uh, picks up on uh, what Deleuze is up to in the time image and the cinema image, and applies that to, I guess, more contemporary examples of film and media, specifically music videos. Uh, so that was interesting, and I have to get around to editing and publishing that as well. So I'll get to that at some point. Anyway, um, here is The Whisperer in the Dark by H.P. Lovecraft. Peace. Bear in mind closely that I did not see any actual visual horror at the end. To say that a mental shock was the cause of what I inferred, that last straw which sent me racing out of the lonely Akeley farmhouse and through the wild domed hills of Vermont in a commandeered motor at night, is to ignore the plainest facts of my final experience. Notwithstanding the deep extent to which I shared the information and speculations of Henry Akeley, the things I saw and heard, and the admitted vividness of the impression produced on me by these things, I cannot prove even now whether I was right or wrong in my hideous inference. For after all, Akeley's disappearance establishes nothing. People found nothing amiss in his house, despite the bullet marks on the outside and inside. It was just as though he had walked out casually for a ramble in the hills and failed to return. There was not even a sign that a guest had been there or that those horrible cylinders and machines had been stored in the study. That he had mortally feared the crowded green hills and endless trickle of brooks among which he had been born and reared means nothing at all either, for thousands are subject to just such morbid fears. Eccentricity, moreover, could easily account for his strange acts and apprehensions toward the last. The whole matter began, so far as I am concerned, with the historic and unprecedented Vermont floods of November 3rd, 1927. I was then, as now, an instructor of literature at Miskatonic University in Arkham, Massachusetts, and an enthusiastic amateur student of New England folklore. Shortly after the flood, amidst the varied reports of hardship, suffering and organized relief which filled the press, there appeared certain odd stories of things found floating in some of the swollen rivers so that many of my friends embarked on curious discussions and appealed to me to shed what light I could on the subject. I felt flattered at having my folklore study taken so seriously and did what I could to belittle the wild, vague tales which seemed so clearly an outgrowth of old, rustic superstitions. It amused me to find several persons of education who insisted that some stratum of obscure, distorted fact might underlie the rumours. The tales thus brought to my notice came mostly through newspaper cuttings, though one yarn had an oral source and was repeated to a friend of mine in a letter from his mother in Hardwick, Vermont. The type of thing described was essentially the same in all cases, though there seemed to be three separate instances involved. One connected with the Winooski River near Montpelier, 
another attached to the West River in Wyndham County beyond Newfane, and a third centering in the Persumpsic in Caledonia County above Lindenville. Of course, many of the stray items mentioned other instances, but on analysis they all seemed to boil down to these three. In each case, country folk reported seeing one or more very bizarre and disturbing objects in the surging waters that poured down from the unfrequented hills. And there was a widespread tendency to connect these sites with a primitive, half-forgotten cycle of whispered legend, which old people resurrected for the occasion. What people thought they saw were organic shapes not quite like any they had ever seen before. Naturally, there were many human bodies washed along by the streams in that tragic period, but those who described these strange shapes felt quite sure that they were not human, despite some superficial resemblances in size and general outline. Nor, said the witnesses, could they have been any kind of animal known to Vermont. They were pinkish things about five feet long, with crustaceous bodies bearing vast pairs of dorsal fins or membranous wings and several sets of articulated limbs, and with a sort of convoluted ellipsoid covered with multitudes of very short antennae where a head would ordinarily be. It was really remarkable how closely the reports from different sources tended to coincide, though the wonder was lessened by the fact that the old legends, shared at one time throughout the hill country, furnished a morbidly vivid picture which might well have coloured the imaginations of all the witnesses concerned. It was my conclusion that such witnesses, in every case naive and simple backwoods folk, had glimpsed the battered and bloated bodies of human beings or farm animals in the whirling currents, and had allowed the half-remembered folklore to invest these pitiful objects with fantastic attributes. The ancient folklore, while cloudy, evasive and largely forgotten by the present generation, was of a highly singular character and obviously reflected the influence of still earlier Indian tales. I knew it well, though I had never been in Vermont, through the exceedingly rare monograph of Eli Davenport, which embraces material orally obtained prior to 1839 among the oldest people of the state. This material, moreover, closely coincided with tales which I had personally heard from elderly rustics in the mountains of New Hampshire. Briefly summarised, it hinted at a hidden race of monstrous beings which lurked somewhere among the remoter hills, in the deep woods of the highest peaks and the dark valleys where streams trickle from unknown sources. These beings were seldom glimpsed, but evidences of their presence were reported by those who had ventured farther than usual up the slopes of certain mountains, or into certain deep, steep-sided gorges that even the wolves shunned. There were queer footprints, or claw prints in the mud of brook margins and barren patches, and curious circles of stones, with the grass around them worn away, which did not seem to have been placed or entirely shaped by nature. There were, too, certain caves of problematical depth in the sides of the hills, with mouths closed by boulders in a manner scarcely accidental, and with more than an average quota of the queer prints leading both toward and away from them, if indeed the direction of these prints could be justly estimated. And worst of all, there were the things which adventurous people had seen very rarely in the twilight of the remotest valleys and the dense perpendicular woods above the limits of normal hill climbing. It would have been less uncomfortable if the stray accounts of these things had not agreed so well. As it was, nearly all the rumours had several points in common, averring that the creatures were a sort of huge light red crab with many pairs of legs, 
and with two great bat-like wings in the middle of the back. They sometimes walked on all their legs and sometimes on the hindmost pair only, using the others to convey large objects of indeterminate nature. On one occasion they were spied in considerable numbers, a detachment of them wading along a shallow woodland watercourse three abreast in evidently disciplined formation. Once a specimen was seen flying, launching itself from the top of a bald, lonely hill at night and vanishing in the sky after its great flapping wings had been silhouetted an instant against the full moon. These things seemed content on the whole to let mankind alone, though they were at times held responsible for the disappearance of venturesome individuals, especially persons who built houses too close to certain valleys or too high up on certain mountains. Many localities came to be known as inadvisable to settle in, the feeling persisting long after the cause was forgotten. People would look up at some of the neighbouring mountain precipices with a shudder, even when not recalling how many settlers had been lost and how many farmhouses burnt to ashes on the lower slopes of those grim, green sentinels. But while according to the earliest legends, the creatures would appear to have harmed only those trespassing on their privacy. There were later accounts of their curiosity respecting men and of their attempts to establish secret outposts in the human world. There were tales of the queer claw prints seen around farmhouse windows in the morning and of occasional disappearances in regions outside the obviously haunted areas. Tales besides of buzzing voices in imitation of human speech which made surprising offers to lone travellers on roads and cart paths in the deep woods and of children frightened out of their wits by things seen or heard where the primal forest pressed close upon their dooryards. In the final layer of legends, the layer just preceding the decline of superstition and the abandonment of close contact with the dreaded places, there are shocked references to hermits and remote farmers who at some period of life appeared to have undergone a repellent mental change and who were shunned and whispered about as mortals who had sold themselves to the strange beings. In one of the northeastern counties, it seemed to be a fashion about 1800 to accuse eccentric and unpopular recluses of being allies or representatives of the abhorred things. As to what the things were, explanations naturally varied. The common name applied to them was those ones or the old ones, though other terms had a local and transient use. Perhaps the bulk of the Puritan settlers set them down bluntly as familiars of the devil and made them a basis of awed theological speculation. Those with Celtic legendary in their heritage, mainly the Scotch-Irish element of New Hampshire and their kindred who had settled in Vermont on Governor Wentworth's colonial grants, linked them vaguely with the malign fairies and little people of the bogs and raths and protected themselves with scraps of incantation handed down through many generations. But the Indians had the most fantastic theories of all, while different tribal legends differed, there was a marked consensus of belief in certain vital particulars, it being unanimously agreed that the creatures were not native to this earth. The Penacook myths, which were the most consistent and picturesque, taught that the winged ones came from the great bear in the sky and had mines in our earthly hills whence they took a kind of stone they could not get on any other world. They did not live here, said the myths, but merely maintained outposts and flew back with vast cargoes of stone to their own stars in the north. They harmed only those earth people who got too near them or spied upon them. Animals shunned them through instinctive hatred, not because of being hunted. 
They could not eat the things and animals of Earth, but brought their own food from the stars. It was bad to get near them, and sometimes young hunters who went into their hills never came back. It was not good, either, to listen to what they whispered at night in the forest with voices like a bee's, that tried to be like the voices of men. They knew the speech of all kinds of men, Penacooks, Hurons, men of the Five Nations, but did not seem to have or need any speech of their own. They talked with their heads, which changed colour in different ways, to mean different things. All the legendary, of course, white and Indian alike, died down during the 19th century, except for occasional atavistical flare-ups. The ways of the Vermonters became settled, and once their habitual paths and dwellings were established according to a certain fixed plan, they remembered less and less what fears and avoidances had determined that plan, and even that there had been any fears or avoidances. Most people simply knew that certain hilly regions were considered as highly unhealthy, unprofitable, and generally unlucky to live in, and that the farther one kept from them, the better off one usually was. In time, the ruts of custom and economic interest became so deeply cut in a proved place that there was no longer any reason for going outside them, and the haunted hills were left deserted by accident rather than by design. Save during infrequent local scares, only wonder-loving grandmothers and the retrospective elderly ever whispered of beings dwelling in those hills, and even such whisperers admitted that there was not much to fear from those things now that they were used to the presence of houses and settlements and now that human beings let their chosen territory severely alone. All this I'd known from my reading and from certain folk tales picked up in New Hampshire. Hence, when the flood-time rumours began to appear, I could easily guess what imaginative background had evolved them. I took great pains to explain this to my friends, and was correspondingly amused when several contentious souls continued to insist on a possible element of truth in the reports. Such persons tried to point out that the early legends had a significant persistence and uniformity, and that the virtually unexplored nature of the Vermont hills made it unwise to be dogmatic about what might or might not dwell among them. Nor could they be silenced by my assurance that all the myths were of a well-known pattern, common to most of mankind, and determined by early phases of imaginative experience, which always produced the same type of delusion. It was of no use to demonstrate to such opponents that the Vermont myths differed but little in essence from those universal legends of natural personification which filled the ancient world with fauns and dryads and satyrs, suggested the Calicanzari of modern Greece, and gave to wild Wales and Ireland their dark hints of strange, small and terrible hidden races of troglodytes and burrowers. No use either to point out the even more startlingly similar belief of the Nepalese hill tribes in the dreaded Migo, or abominable snowmen, who lurk hideously amidst the ice and rock pinnacles of the Himalayan summits. When I brought up this evidence, my opponents turned it against me by claiming that it must imply some actual historicity for the ancient tales, that it must argue the real existence of some queer, elder earth race driven to hiding after the advent and dominance of mankind which might very conceivably have survived in reduced numbers to relatively recent times, or even to the present. The more I laughed at such theories, the more these stubborn friends asserted them, adding that even without the heritage of legend, the recent reports were too clear, consistent, detailed, and sanely prosaic in manner of telling, to be completely ignored. 
Two or three fanatical extremists went so far as to hint at possible meanings in the ancient Indian tales, which gave the hidden beings a non-terrestrial origin, citing the extravagant books of Charles Fort with their claims that voyagers from other worlds and outer space have often visited Earth. Most of my foes, however, were merely romanticists, who insisted on trying to transfer to real life the fantastic lore of lurking little people, made popular by the magnificent horror fiction of Arthur Macon. Part 2 As was only natural under the circumstances, this piquant debating finally got into print in the form of letters to the Arkham Advertiser, some of which were copied in the press of those Vermont regions whence the flood stories came. The Rutland Herald gave half a page of extracts from the letters on both sides, while the Brattleboro Reformer reprinted one of my long historical and mythological summaries in full, with some accompanying comments in The Pendrifter's Thoughtful Column, which supported and applauded my sceptical conclusions. By the spring of 1928 I was almost a well-known figure in Vermont, notwithstanding the fact that I had never set foot in the state. Then came the challenging letters from Henry Akeley, which impressed me so profoundly, and which took me for the first and last time to that fascinating realm of crowded green precipices and muttering forest streams. Most of what I now know of Henry Wentworth Akeley was gathered by correspondence with his neighbours and with his only son in California after my experience in his lonely farmhouse. He was, I discovered, the last representative on his home soil of a long, locally distinguished line of jurists, administrators and gentlemen agriculturists. In him, however, the family had veered away from practical affairs to pure scholarship, oh that he had been a notable student of mathematics, astronomy, biology, anthropology and folklore at the University of Vermont. I had never previously heard of him, and he did not give many autobiographical details in his communications, but from the first I saw he was a man of character, education and intelligence, albeit a recluse with very little worldly sophistication. Despite the incredible nature of what he claimed, I could not help at once taking Akeley more seriously than I had taken any of the other challengers of my views. For one thing, he was really close to the actual phenomena, visible and tangible, that he speculated so grotesquely about. And for another thing, he was amazingly willing to leave his conclusions in a tentative state like a true man of science. He had no personal preferences to advance and was always guided by what he took to be solid evidence. Of course, I began by considering him mistaken, but gave him credit for being intelligently mistaken, and at no time did I emulate some of his friends in attributing his ideas and his fear of the lonely green hills to insanity. I could see that there was a great deal to the man, and knew that what he reported must surely come from strange circumstances deserving investigation, however little it might have to do with the fantastic causes he assigned. Later on I received from him certain material proofs which placed the matter on a somewhat different and bewilderingly bizarre basis. I cannot do better than transcribe in full, so far as is possible, the long letter in which Akerley introduced himself and which formed such an important landmark in my own intellectual history. It is no longer in my possession, but my memory holds almost every word of its portentous message. And again I affirm my confidence in the sanity of the man who wrote it. Here is the text. A text which reached me in the cramped, archaic-looking scrawl of one who had obviously not mingled much with the world during his sedate, scholarly life. The letter was addressed to me, Albert N. Wilmarth Esquire at my place of residence, 118 Saltonstall Street, Arkham, Massachusetts. 
My dear sir, I have read with great interest the Brattleboro Reformers reprint from April 23rd and 28th of your letter on the recent stories of strange bodies seen floating in our flooded streams last fall and on the curious folklore they so well agree with. It is easy to see why an outlander would take the position you take and even why Pendrifter agrees with you. That is the attitude generally taken by educated persons both in and out of Vermont and was my own attitude as a young man. I'm now 57. Before my studies, both General and in Davenport's book, led me to do some exploring in parts of the hills hereabouts not usually visited. I was directed towards such studies by the queer old tales I used to hear from elderly farmers of the more ignorant sort, but now I wish I had let the whole matter alone. I might say, with all proper modesty, that the subject of anthropology and folklore is by no means strange to me, I took a good deal of it at college and am familiar with most of the standard authorities such as Tyler, Lubbock, Fraser, Quatrefages, Murray, Osborne, Keith, Boole, G. Eliot Smith, and so on. It is no news to me that tales of hidden races are as old as all mankind. I have seen the reprints of letters from you and those arguing with you in the Rutland Herald and guess I know about where your controversy stands at the present time. What I desire to say now is, had I'm afraid your adversaries are nearer right than yourself, even though all reason seems to be on your side. They are nearer right than they realize themselves, for of course they go only by theory and cannot know what I know. If I knew as little of the matter as they, I would not feel justified in believing as they do. I would be wholly on your side. You can see that I am having a hard time getting to the point probably because I really dread getting to the point. But the upshot of the matter is that I have certain evidence that monstrous things do indeed live in the woods on the high hills which nobody visits. I have not seen any of the things floating in the rivers, as reported, but I have seen things like them under circumstances I dread to repeat. I have seen footprints, and of late have seen them nearer my own home, I live in the old Akeley place south of Townsend Village on the side of Dark Mountain than I dare tell you now, and I have overheard voices in the woods at certain points that I will not even begin to describe on paper. At one place I heard them so much that I took a phonograph there with a dictaphone attachment and wax blank, and I shall try to arrange to have you hear the record I got. I have run it on the machine for some of the old people up here, and one of the voices had nearly scared them paralyzed by reason of its likeness to a certain voice, that buzzing voice in the woods which Davenport mentions, that their grandmothers have told about and mimicked for them. I know what most people think of a man who tells about hearing voices, but before you draw conclusions, just listen to this record and ask some of the older backwoods people what they think of it if you can account for it normally, very well. But there must be something behind it. Ex nihilo, nihil fit, you know. Now, my object in writing you is not to start an argument, but to give you information which I think a man of your tastes will find deeply interesting. This is private. Publicly, I am on your side, for certain things show me that it does not do for people to know too much about these matters. My own studies are now wholly private and I would not think of saying anything to attract people's attention and cause them to visit the places I have explored. It is true, terribly true, that there are non-human creatures watching us all the time, with spies among us gathering information. It is from a wretched man who, 
if he was sane, as I think he was, was one of those spies, had I got a large part of my clues to the matter. He later killed himself, but I have reason to think there are others now. The things come from another planet, being able to live in interstellar space and fly through it on clumsy, powerful wings which have a way of resisting the ether, but which are too poor at steering to be of much use in helping them about on Earth. I will tell you about this later, if you do not dismiss me at once as a madman. They come here to get metals from mines that go deep under the hills, and I think I know where they come from. They will not hurt us if we let them alone, but no one can say what will happen if we get too curious about them. Of course, a good army of men could wipe out their mining colony. But if that happened, more would come from outside, any number of them. They could easily conquer the Earth, but have not tried so far because they have not needed to. They would rather leave things as they are to save bother. I think they mean to get rid of me because of what I have discovered. There is a great black stone with unknown hieroglyphics half-worn away, which I found in the woods on Round Hill, east of here. And after I took it home, everything became different. If they think I suspect too much, they will either kill me or take me off the earth to where they come from. They like to take away men of learning once in a while to keep informed on the state of things in the human world. This leads me to my secondary purpose in addressing you, namely to urge you to hush up the present debate rather than give it more publicity. People must be kept away from these hills, and in order to effect this their curiosity ought not to be aroused any further. Heaven knows there is peril enough anyway, with promoters and real estate men flooding Vermont with herds of summer people to overrun the wild places and cover the hills with cheap bungalows. I shall welcome further communication with you, and shall try to send you that phonograph record and black stone, which is so worn that photographs don't show much, by express if you are willing. I say try, because I think those creatures have a way of tampering with things around here. There is a sullen, furtive fellow named Brown on a farm near the village who I think is their spy. Little by little they are trying to cut me off from our world, because I know too much about their world. They have the most amazing way of finding out what I do. You may not even get this letter. I think I shall have to leave this part of the country and go to live with my son in San Diego if things get any worse. But it is not easy to give up the place you were born in and where your family has lived for six generations. Also, I would hardly dare sell this house to anybody now that the creatures have taken notice of it. They seem to be trying to get the black stone back and destroy the phonograph record, but I shall not let them if I can help it. My great police dogs always hold them back, for there are very few here as yet, and they are clumsy in getting about. As I have said, their wings are not much use for short flights on earth. I am on the very brink of deciphering that stone in a very terrible way, and with your knowledge of folklore, you may be able to supply missing links enough to help me. I suppose you know all about the fearful myths antedating the coming of man to the earth, the Yogg-Sothoth and Cthulhu cycles, which are hinted at in the Necronomicon. I had access to a copy of that once, and hear that you have one in your college library under lock and key. To conclude, Mr. Wilmarth, I think that with our respective studies we can be very useful to each other. 
I don't wish to put you in any peril, and suppose I ought to warn you that possession of the stone and the record won't be very safe. But I think you will find any risks worth running for the sake of knowledge. I will drive down to Newfane or Brattleboro to send whatever you authorize me to send, for the express offices there are more to be trusted. I might say that I live quite alone now since I can't keep hired help anymore. They won't stay because of the things that try to get near the house at night and that keep the dogs barking continually. I'm glad I didn't get as deep as this into the business while my wife was alive, for it would have driven her mad. Hoping that I am not bothering you unduly and that you will decide to get in touch with me rather than throw this letter into the wastebasket as a madman's raving, I am yours. Very truly, Henry W. Akeley. P.S. I am making some extra prints of certain photographs taken by me, which I think will help to prove a number of the points I have touched on. The old people think they are monstrously true. I shall send you these very soon, if you are interested. It would be difficult to describe my sentiments upon reading this strange document for the first time. By all ordinary rules, I ought to have laughed more loudly at these extravagances than at the far milder theories which had previously moved me to mirth. Yet something in the tone of the letter made me take it with paradoxical seriousness. Not that I believed for a moment in the hidden race from the stars which my correspondent spoke of, but that, after some grave preliminary doubts, I grew to feel oddly sure of his sanity and sincerity, and of his confrontation by some genuine, though singular and abnormal phenomenon which he could not explain except in this imaginative way. It could not be as he thought it, I reflected, Yet on the other hand, it could not be otherwise than worthy of investigation. The man seemed unduly excited and alarmed about something, but it was hard to think that all cause was lacking. He was so specific and logical in certain ways, and after all his yarn did fit in so perplexingly well with some of the old myths, even the wildest Indian legends, that he had really overheard disturbing voices in the hills, and had really found the black stone he spoke about was wholly possible, despite the crazy inferences he had made. Inferences probably suggested by the man who had claimed to be a spy of the outer beings, and had later killed himself. It was easy to deduce that this man must have been wholly insane, but that he probably had a streak of perverse outward logic which made the naive Aculi, already prepared for such things by his folklore studies, believe his tale. As for the latest developments, it appeared from his inability to keep hired help that Akeley's humbler rustic neighbours were as convinced as he that his house was besieged by uncanny things at night. The dogs really barked too, and then the matter of that phonograph record which I could not but believe he had obtained in the way he said. It must mean something. Whether animal noises, deceptively like human speech, or the speech of some hidden, night-haunting human being decayed to a state not much above that of lower animals. From this, my thoughts went back to the black hieroglyphed stone, and to speculations upon what it might mean. Then, too, what of the photographs which Akeley said he was about to send, and which the old people had found so convincingly terrible? As I reread the cramped handwriting, I felt as never before that my credulous opponents might have more on their side than I had conceded. After all, there might be some queer, and perhaps hereditarily misshapen outcasts in those shunned hills, even though no such race of star-born monsters as folklore claimed. And if there were, then the presence of strange bodies in the flooded streams would not be wholly beyond belief. 
Was it too presumptuous to suppose that both the old legends and the recent reports had this much of reality behind them? But even as I harboured these doubts, I felt ashamed that so fantastic a piece of bizarrery as Henry Akeley's wild letter had brought them up. In the end, I answered Akeley's letter, adopting a tone of friendly interest and soliciting further particulars. His reply came almost by return mail, and contained, true to promise, a number of Kodak views of scenes and objects illustrating what he had to tell. Glancing at these pictures as I took them from the envelope, I felt a curious sense of fright and nearness to forbidden things, for in spite of the vagueness of most of them, they had a damnably suggestive power which was intensified by the fact of their being genuine photographs, actual optical links with what they portrayed, and the product of an impersonal transmitting process without prejudice, fallibility, or mendacity. The more I looked at them, the more I saw that my serious estimate of Akeley and his story had not been unjustified. Certainly these pictures carried conclusive evidence of something in the Vermont Hills which was at least vastly outside the radius of our common knowledge and belief. The worst thing of all was the footprint, a view taken where the sun shone on a mud patch somewhere in a deserted upland. This was no cheaply counterfeited thing, I could see at a glance for the sharply defined pebbles and grass blades in the field of vision gave a clear index of scale and left no possibility of a tricky double exposure. I have called the thing a footprint, but claw print would be a better term. Even now I can scarcely describe it save to say that it was hideously crab-like and that there seemed to be some ambiguity about its direction. It was not a very deep or fresh print, but seemed to be about the size of an average man's foot. From a central pad, pairs of saw-toothed nippers projected in opposite directions, quite baffling as to function, if indeed the whole object were exclusively an organ of locomotion. Another photograph, evidently a time exposure taken in deep shadow, was of the mouth of a woodland cave, with a boulder of rounded regularity choking the aperture. On the bare ground in front of it, one could just discern a dense network of curious tracks, and when I studied the picture with a magnifier, I felt uneasily sure that the tracks were like the one in the other view. A third picture showed a druid-like circle of standing stones on the summit of a wild hill. Around the cryptic circle the grass was very much beaten down and worn away, though I could not detect any footprints even with the glass. The extreme remoteness of the place was apparent from the veritable sea of tenantless mountains which formed the background and stretched away toward a misty horizon, but if the most disturbing of all the views was that of the footprint, the most curiously suggestive was that of the great black stone found in the Round Hill Woods. Akeley had photographed it on what was evidently his study table, for I could see rows of books and a bust of Milton in the background. The thing, as nearly as one might guess, had faced the camera vertically with a somewhat irregularly curved surface of one by two feet. But to say anything definite about that surface, or about the general shape of the whole mass, almost defies the power of language. What outlandish geometrical principles had guided its cutting, for artificially cut it surely was. I could not even begin to guess, and never before had I seen anything which struck me as so strangely and unmistakably alien to this world. Of the hieroglyphics on the surface I could discern very few, but one or two that I did see gave me rather a shock. Of course, they might be fraudulent, for others besides myself had read the monstrous and abhorred necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred. But it nevertheless made me shiver to recognize certain ideographs 
which study had taught me to link with the most blood-curdling and blasphemous whispers of things that had had a kind of mad half-existence before the earth and the other inner worlds of the solar system were made. Of the five remaining pictures, three were of swamp and hill scenes which seemed to bear traces of hidden and unwholesome tenancy. Another was of a queer mark in the ground very near Akeley's house, which he said he had photographed the morning after a night on which the dogs had barked more violently than usual. It was very blurred, and one could really draw no certain conclusions from it. But it did seem fiendishly like that other mark or claw print photographed on the deserted upland. The final picture was of the Akeley place itself, a trim white house of two stories and attic, about a century and a quarter old, and with a well-kept lawn and stone-bordered path leading up to a tastefully carved Georgian doorway. There were several huge police dogs on the lawn, squatting near a pleasant-faced man with a close-cropped grey beard, whom I took to be Akerley himself, his own photographer, one might infer from the tube-connected bulb in his right hand. From the pictures, I turned to the bulky, closely-written letter itself, and for the next three hours was immersed in a gulf of unutterable horror. Where Akerley had given only outlines before, he now entered into minute details, presenting long transcripts of words overheard in the woods at night, long accounts of monstrous pinkish forms spied in thickets at twilight on the hills, and a terrible cosmic narrative derived from the application of profound and varied scholarship to the endless bygone discourses of the mad self-styled spy who had killed himself. I found myself faced by names and terms that I had heard elsewhere in the most hideous of connections. Yugoth, Great Cthulhu, Sathogwa, Yog-Sothoth, Ralier, Nialathotep, Azathoth, Hastur, Yan, Leng, Telake of Hali, Bethmura, the Yellow Sign, Lemur Cthulos, Bran, and the Magnum Inominandum, and was drawn back through nameless eons and inconceivable dimensions to worlds of Elder, outer entity at which the crazed author of the Necronomicon had only guessed in the vaguest way. I was told of the pits of primal life, and of the streams that had trickled down therefrom and finally of the tiny rivulet from one of those streams which had become entangled with the destinies of our own earth. My brain whirled, and where before I had attempted to explain things away, I now began to believe in the most abnormal and incredible wonders. The array of vital evidence was damnably vast and overwhelming, and the cool scientific attitude of Akerley, an attitude removed as far as imaginable from the demented, the fanatical, the hysterical, or even the extravagantly speculative, had a tremendous effect on my thought and judgment. By the time I laid the frightful letter aside, I could understand the fears he had come to entertain, and was ready to do anything in my power to keep people away from those wild, haunted hills. Even now, when time has dulled the impression and made me half-question my own experience and horrible doubt, there are things in that letter of Akeley's which I would not quote or even form into words on paper. I am almost glad that the letter and record and photographs are gone now, and I wish, for reasons I shall soon make clear, that the new planet beyond Neptune had not been discovered. With the reading of that letter, my public debating about the Vermont horror permanently ended. Arguments from opponents remained unanswered or put off with promises, and eventually the controversy petered out into oblivion. During late May and June I was in constant correspondence with Akeley, though once in a while a letter would be lost, so that we would have to retrace our ground and perform considerable laborious copying. What we were trying to do, as a whole, 
was to compare notes in matters of obscure mythological scholarship and arrive at a clearer correlation of the Vermont horrors with the general body of primitive world legend. For one thing, we virtually decided that these morbidities and the hellish Himalayan Migo were one and the same order of incarnated nightmare. There were also absorbing zoological conjectures, which I would have referred to Professor Dexter in my own college, but for Akeley's imperative command to tell no one of the matter before us. If I seem to disobey that command now, it is only because I think that at this stage a warning about those farther Vermont hills and about those Himalayan peaks which bold explorers are more and more determined to ascend is more conducive to public safety than silence would be. One specific thing we were leading up to was a deciphering of the hieroglyphics on that infamous black stone. A deciphering which might well place us in possession of secrets, deeper and more dizzying than any formerly known to man.' 